Hey friends, and welcome to Waterworks Ministries podcast episode 20. We've got Dr. Mary Beth Morrison on this episode again with us, and we're going to be talking about juvenile justice education and the school to prison pipeline and how that can facilitate evil and how evil shows up in these environments. Uh, Before we get started with the interview, we've got a couple announcements. This Saturday, so this podcast is coming out on a Thursday, so the Saturday after, which is February 24th, we've got a workshop from 9 a.m. to noon at McVeightown United Methodist Church on praying scripture, and information is on the website for that. On March 4th at 6 o'clock, 6 in the evening, we have our third Sante Spirituality Gathering, and the topic this time is going to be Celtic Spirituality. We hope you can join us for that. And then most importantly, on March 18th, we've got our Waterworks Ministries fundraiser event at 6.30 in the evening at Grace United Methodist Church in Center Hall, and there's going to be a concert um, Three of us are going to be singing. There's a flute player and a pianist, and we're doing psalms set to traditional Irish melodies. So I hope you can come out for that. Tickets are $10, and all the info for these three events is on our Waterworks website, which is www.waterworksministries.org, and it's under the Training and Retreat tab. So we hope you can join us. And without further ado, let's get on to my interview with Mary Beth. All right. Welcome, everyone. I am here with Dr. Mary Beth Morrison. Uh, I am Karen Weiss, your host of the Waterworks Ministries podcast. And we are continuing with season two, talking about evil and spiritual warfare. And today we're going to talk about the juvenile justice system, uh, CHIP, and the education to prison pipeline and how all of these things could be changing and how we need to get involved with the education system and the juvenile justice system to create a better world for our youth. So thank you, Mary Beth. You're welcome, Karen. Thanks for having me again. Yay. This is the (laughs) second interview for those of you who listen to our Theodicy podcast spiritual or satan and the problem of evil let's rock it out and say it together creating a trinitarian warfare theology yes (laughs) yay it's a mouthful yes so let's start with something that's been in the news recently um our united states congress decided to not refund chip which has made very many people mad. Um, but the implications of that not just are for medical care, um, but also for the greater community at large and some of the family systems and structures and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, when I think about all of these topics and chip. I think falls in that bucket too. It's like the canary in the coal mine. If we're mm-hmm. going to start not funding children's health care, um, there's something wrong with a society that doesn't take care of their children. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, we can say that about a lot of things. There's something wrong with the society that doesn't take care of their elderly, that doesn't take care of their veterans. I mean, there's a whole list of them that can fit in that bucket. But when you decide not to fund health care for kids um, and you consider the people, most of the people that are using CHIP are either young families that are barely making ends meet and this gives their kids health care. Or if you start looking at Sometimes it's families that have a lot of medical bills because they have a kid that's sick. Then you start having to ask the question, what, what are we thinking? What are we thinking when we decide to do this? And what are the repercussions of it? Well, the repercussions of it is that people start taking their kids to the emergency room for everything mm. because there's mm -hmm. no other way for them to get health care. And so there'll be a drain on that system, which is already tenuous. And in our community, we don't have pediatrics at our hospital. So that means mm. that families that are taking their kids to the ER are taking it in an area where there's not, um, there's, should the child have to be hospitalized, there's no place to put them because mm. we don't have those services here. Mm. So <clears throat> you start thinking the impact of that on rural communities when you have to start going two hours away and now you don't have medical care. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a systems piece that's a problem. And it leads to um, some of the next things that you had in your list. Mm -hmm. When we start looking at kids that can't get health care, that are sick all the time, that come from poor families, that have a lot of issues, that maybe were premature or had you know, some other things and they've got learning disabilities, and, or some other special education type issue that falls on top of that, um, we know that early intervention is important. And if we start cutting those systems, then we start looking at what's the outcome by the time the kid is eight, nine, or 10. Mm -hmm. The average age that a kid starts getting involved in drugs and alcohol issues in the United States is 10 years old. That's a third grader. Wow. fourth grader yeah that's really young that's really young and it's that when a kid doesn't have these issues addressed because early intervention is gone or chip has not addressed some of the health care issues that were underlying some things by the time they hit third grade they've already decided that school is not for them and they have mm. not No, I wouldn't say they're aware that they've decided they're going to drop out, but they've already kind of started thinking about when can I get out of here mm, by mm -hmm. third grade. And incidentally, that's usually when Head Start continuation services also stop. Mm. It's about third grade. So you've got a lot of issues that play into that. And when I was looking at the kids that I taught or the kids that were in my data set for my dissertation, because I looked at um, kids who were incarcerated in Pennsylvania in 2001 and 2002. A lot of those kids came through Head Start, had significant special education problems, and then developed either drug and alcohol problems or in conjunction with that, mental health problems. And so the juvenile system became a way of dealing with mental health problems, and as a result of that, the adult system is also dealing with mental health problems. And mm. we don't 
necessarily train guards and people who were working in youth facilities to have that kind of a background. No, yeah, most of them don't. So let's start with maybe some of the the medical conditions, mental illness, ADHD, um, and and special education pieces that you saw. Um, talk about how those children in particular seem to get pushed to the side or pulled to the side because they've maybe decided that school's not for them anymore or they're not being, their needs are not being met in a way that provides health and well-being and that kind of thing. Well, most kids, when they get identified as having something like that, are in second or third grade. Some kids it's older, but for most kids, they'll start being identified in second or third grade. And usually it's for learning disabilities or ADHD. Um, because if they've got a cognitive disability, the parents know about that and the school knows about that before they get there. Same thing with a physical disability. That's pretty obvious. That's known before a kid gets there. So what you're, what you're looking at are people who have um, children mostly with learning disabilities and ADHD that are coming in. Depending on what the learning disability is, um, it could be reading related, it could be math related, it could be speech related. Um, so there's a lot of issues that can go into that that will show up in a kid. The other thing that happens is if a kid is struggling in school and they're frustrated, pretty quickly on the heels of that becomes a behavior problem. Mm -hmm. And that's often when um, they'll start getting referred. When they now becoming a behavior problem in the classroom, they'll start going back and looking at, you know, where did this stem from? Yeah. Uh, in ADHD, you can pick out the kids pretty quick that can't sit still and can't shut up. Mm. But ADHD also shows up in a lot of other ways. Um, a low frustration, quick to mm. anger, um, things that come out of their mouth before with no sensor mm -hmm. kind of thing. And those kids are a drain on a teacher's emotional resources in her classroom. <laughs> I'm sure. And the other kids pick up on it pretty quickly, and then bullying becomes a part of the problem, too. And so there are a number of things that happen in the system that's called school that creates something that moves into what we call the school, <coughs> excuse me, to prison pipeline, hmm. which means that school exacerbates the problems that end up making hmm. kids go to juvie or adult prison. Hmm. So there's something inherent in the way that our education system <coughs> is currently functioning right. that does not account for outliers. I and I don't know what else to what other word to use and statistically. It's, yeah, then that's probably a good word for it. Um it's funny because all my students, and I teach adults will, that are I'm training to be teachers or I'm training to be trainers at this point, will say the same thing. Why do we have so many of these kids? Mm. And when I went to school, I don't remember them being this many kids that had all these issues. And I say, well, we didn't have special education mandated until 1975. 
Mm. And it takes in any system a long time for any change to get ramped up to the point where you're going to start to see a lot of the outcome from it. Mm. So in, in 75, we had Public Law 94142 passed, which is the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. And then in, um, and it was reauthorized and eventually became the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. But it wasn't until 1990 that we even started looking at, we should think about what's going to happen when these kids leave, leave here. And there should be something called a transition plan that helps them transition from school to post-secondary training or from school to work. So 15 years mm -hmm. before we started saying, hey, these kids get out of school and fall off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And we saw that a lot with um, kids on the autism spectrum, kids with uh, cognitive disabilities where once they graduated, they kind of entered a black hole mm. and all the potential that they gained in school or started to gain in school was lost. Mm. <clears throat> and the kids on the autism spectrum from a study that I did a few years ago, what we were finding was that they'd show up again when they were like 25 or 26 because now they've hit the mental health system. Mm. The anxiety and the stress and all of the things that uh, you often see a company autism when there's no services and nothing is happening and imagine being a parent of a kid with autism now they're 25 and 26 mm -hmm. and they're starting to deal with anxiety and not wanting to leave the house or some ocd stuff or depression mm -hmm. so that that's another piece of the system that happens along the way with those two particular populations but for kids with learning disabilities and kids with adhd the drug and alcohol abuse rate is really high. The suicide rate is really high. The um, divorce rate is really high. It's hard for them to get, keep, and maintain jobs. Mm -hmm. um, those types of things. Mm -hmm. So often those kids end up in the criminal justice system. When, when I was doing my study there were 11 or 12 state-run facilities and I looked at kids in seven of them. And the average age for most of the facilities was between 14 and 17. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't a level system like there is in the, in the adult prisons, but there was. Mm. I mean, if you were a first-time offender or you were younger, you were probably gonna go to Louisville. If you were a hardcore offender and you were on the next level before you were going to end up in uh, adult prison, you were probably at Crescent. Um, if you were a drug addict, mostly, you'd end up in Danville. And Danville had a boys and a girls unit. It was the only girls unit in the state that was not um, for profit. Mm. And Department of Welfare ran the residential side of it and the Department of Education ran the educational side of it because when kids were in juvenile detention, they still had to go to school. Okay. Young adults who are incarcerated who have an IEP, if they qualify for services till 21, the state still has to provide instruction for them until they hit 21. <clears throat> but those are mostly kids who are more cognitively impaired. So you've got 
what we used to call mentally retarded, we no longer mm -hmm. use that term, individuals who end up in prison. And if they're under 21, they're still eligible for educational services. And you know, we, I know several people that teach special ed in Rockview, for instance. Hmm. So. Interesting. So talk a little bit about the difference between the state-run institutions and the for-profit institutions. The for-profit institutions are those institutions that are set up to make money off of incarcerating others, mm. whether it's juvenile or whether it's adult. Their sole purpose is to turn a profit. And there are some things in this world that probably should not be for profit. <laughs> and prisons are one of them. Because if you, if you think about that, okay, I'm running a for-profit prison. That means I have to punish people and find people who have done something wrong mm. or create more laws that push people to be incarcerated so that I can maintain these for-profit institutions that are mm. located here. Yeah. And if you live in, let's just pick on Houtsdale. You pick on, mm. let's say Houtsdale puts in a for-profit prison. Houtsdale is a fairly rural, mm. fairly low-income area area that doesn't have a lot of jobs mm -hmm. so if you're the representative for that area and it's going to bring jobs high-paying state jobs into your area you're going to be interested in getting a prison located there well if they're for profit the pay isn't as good they don't have the state benefits but it still brings jobs into your area mm -hmm. so there's a lot of political stuff that goes on with where prisons are located and why mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> Probably one of the best examples of how that all worked out with a different system was in the 1800s when we were looking at land-grant institutions. People were given a choice whether they wanted to locate a land-grant institution in their community or they wanted to locate a mental hospital in their community. And Penn State picked land-grant <laughs> institution. That's how we got Penn State. And up the road in Sealands Grove, we got Sealands Grove Center, which is a home for the mentally mm. handicapped. So those are the types of things that go on in the background that a lot of people don't know about related to why do we have prisons and where they're located? Mm -hmm. Why do we have mental institutions, which we don't have hardly any of anymore, and there's another whole piece of ball of wax that came out of that whole system and the closure of it. And why are things located where they're located and mm -hmm. what, what happens to get them there? So a for-profit prison, whether it's juvenile or otherwise, if you want to talk about evil, mm -hmm. now we've got people making money off of human suffering mm. in a different way. Now, yeah. are there truly evil people that need to be locked up? Yes, there really are. Is anyone beyond redemption? No. Yeah. Unless they choose to be so. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there are some people that do choose to be beyond redemption. Yeah. But for the most part, we're locking up people who are poor, who are predominantly black and Hispanic, and who have some sort of mental health or learning disability problem. Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like if you 
just look at the statistics, of which there are many, we are not going to quote, but it really does appear that we are, the justice system in particular, whether I think juvenile or adult, is singling out people that are not considered as valuable as others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those who are marginalized. Right. Those who don't reflect the standard that right. people have lived into. And when you look at the people who were incarcerated, <clears throat> they tend to be people that are not easy to like. Mm -hmm. And so that adds to it too. Mm -hmm. They tend to be loud. They tend to be, um, they tend to blame others for everything. They tend to be manipulative. They tend to um, be frustrated easy. They tend to get angry easy. They tend to uh, create havoc wherever they go. And you've just described somebody with learning disabilities that you've made it very difficult for them to learn and somebody with ADHD. Mm -hmm. And if you want to add to what happens to those folks down the road, higher rates of depression and anxiety, higher rates of um, obsessive compulsive disorder and the things that go along with that. Mm -hmm. And that all starts back with um, when they're kids, if you've got a kid that's difficult to parent, mm -hmm. you tend to be more punitive because that's what we're taught to do, to get mm -hmm. the kid to get, behave and get, get in, in line. line. Yeah. And then you end up with a kid that thinks they can't do anything right, which is reinforced by school and then reinforced mm -hmm. by the choices that they make because of the things that are happening to them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, now we've populated our prisons with those folks. Mm -hmm. So as a society, if you don't toe the line, if you don't fit into a certain way of looking, acting, doing, being, um, we don't, we're not very tolerant. Yeah, not at all. Mm -mm. I was thinking of something that, I don't even know who said it, but just the change or shift in our justice system entirely. Like, whenever you apply for a job, you have to check a box often, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. have you committed a felony? Right. And some, in reality, some fe felonies are different. There's like murder one. Right. <laughs> right. Versus like thousand dollar stealing. Like there's, you know, there's a fairly big difference in terms of danger to others, you know, violence, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And Someone was telling me that many moons ago, decades, potentially a hundred years ago, if you were in prison, you came out and you served your time and, and that was it. Right. Where now, in the sixties. Okay, in the sixties. Yeah. Well now it follows you wherever you, you go. go. Yep. And you if you've been in prison, people don't trust you enough right. to hire you. To hire you. Right. So that in and of itself perpetuates the, the cycle system. 
Yeah. Uh, because if you can't support yourself, what are you going to do when you get out? Yeah. You can't get welfare. Yeah. <clears throat> you can't get food stamps. You can't get financial aid to go back to school. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things that you don't have access to. So what are you going to do? You're going to go back to selling drugs or you're going to go back to doing whatever it is you can mm -hmm. to make a living. Yeah. And I would think that most of the jobs that you could get don't pay well. Don't pay well and right. are and are labor intensive. Intensive. Yeah. And yeah, once you get to a certain age, you can't well really be doing that anyway. And, but and it also other... doesn't support those low paying jobs don't support right. yourself, let right. alone a family if you have one. Right. The other thing that was happening in Juvie, um which in Pennsylvania does not happen to the extent that it did anymore because mm -hmm. we've closed the majority of the juvenile institutions that we had in place. We only have a handful of them open. But you would have kids from Erie that might be incarcerated down in South Mountain, which is at the opposite end of the state towards Maryland, mm -hmm. and their families aren't going to be able to see them. Now, one of my favorite quotes in my dissertation from one of the principals when I asked about the role of the family was that the family is part of the constellation of horror that makes up the lives of these kids. Mm. But if you can't work with the family, because now the kid is nowhere near where the family is, and you start to get the kid kind of straightened out, one of the other principals said to me at one point during the interview was, he said, you know, we teach these kids how to behave in our society and in our community and in our world. And then we send them home with behaviors that no longer work in their society, community, and home. Mm -hmm. And he said, I almost wonder if we set them up for failure mm -hmm. by doing that. Mm -hmm. And so when you remove the kid from the environment and you can't work with the family, then you're sending the kid back home to a broken environment mm -hmm. where for a while, if the kid has started to make progress and they go home, the family might be like, wow, you know, you're doing so good and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, and everything else. And then the fear starts to set in. And the next thing you know, the family is saying, well, you think you're better than us? Mm -hmm. You think that you're just this and you think that you're just that? And let me tell you, mm -hmm. you know, you're not. And don't be being all high and mighty because you came from this and I can still take you out. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the next thing you know, the kid is torn apart again. Yeah. And we saw that happen more often than not where the parents were part of the biggest problem with the kids. Mm -hmm. I went to court with a kid one day and I was sitting outside the room where he was waiting to go in before the judge and his mother and his grandmother were in there and I'm watching those kids like 14, 15 years old and I think his grandmother was my age. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was only like 38, 39. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, holy moly. <clears throat> and they were, they kept hitting him punching him in the arm and hitting him, smacking him off the back of the head. And finally, the 
youth care worker said, if you touch him one more time, you're both leaving. Mm. You're not going to sit in there with him and hit him on my watch. I'm done. Mm. Well, and he has control over what's going on with that kid in that room. But once that kid goes home, clearly that was the normal behavior for that family. Yeah. So those are some of the things that happen mm. when you take a kid and separate them from the rest of the systems that they're in. You separate them from the school. You separate them from the um, home, family, environment. You separate them from the community where you can't have them integrated in any of the community services that are there. You put them in an artificial, highly structured, institutionalized environment, get them stable, get them taking any meds they're supposed to be taking, and then their sentence is done and you send them home to a probably very unstructured, right, unstable environment where... Right. Because we all know that learning disabilities and ADHD and mental health problems have a genetic predisposition. Mm-hmm. And so more than likely, they're going back to a home where there's self-medication going on and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these other things that go along with mm-hmm. all of that. So talk a little bit now about the community-based intervention, because you said most of the facilities have... They've closed. Most of the juvenile right. facilities have closed. So, And they've gone to more community-based intervention where the if a kid has um, gotten arrested for something, they're trying to do diversionary things where they're working with them in their community um, so that they've got services there. So it's it's a deterrent system. Mm. So they're not actually being locked up. They may have done some time in a short-term facility, but then they're being outpatient somewhere else. Mm. So they're looking at more holistically, how do we keep them in the community where the resources are and where the family is and try to keep them in school? Mm. Because one of the problems that we started running into in the late 90s, early 2000s, was schools stopped dealing with discipline problems. And so if you had a kid come in and there was any inkling of violence or drugs and alcohol or when we went to zero tolerance policies, mm-hmm. they'd call the police. And the police mm-hmm. would come into the school, arrest the kid, take the kid out of the school. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the schools work really hard not to let those kids come back mm-hmm. yeah. because they're a headache. So there are some issues related to how the school to prison pipeline started was Mm. in that dichotomy. Mm. And it's, you know, when my students would say, are we, are there more of them now? Is that what, why is this seems to be that every kid I get has some of these issues? And it's like, well, you know, you're teaching adults and here's what happened in the sixties. You could drop out of school when you're 15 or 16 Mm. years old and you could go into the Ford plant or you can go to Bethlehem Steel or you could go somewhere like that, do a manual labor job that had union wages and you Mm. could buy a house and you could support your kids and you could be functionally illiterate. Mm. Mm -hmm. But you can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And so those kids end up staying in school or they go into an alternative system where they can support their families even though it's not legal. Mm. So you had mentioned a quote, one of your favorite quotes from one of the principals, that the system is just one of the horrors of the life that they live. The 
The family is just one of the horrors. Is the family is part of the constellation of horror that makes up the lives of these kids. Okay. So talk a little bit about how you saw maybe evil being perpetuated, whether it was in the family system or the juvenile justice system or education, because you've worked with all three. Yeah. Well, in the family system, it was that whole tearing the kid down mm. kind of thing. Or abuse. Mm. There's a lot of abuse. I remembered reading through the kids' records and thinking, I feel like I'm seeing the sins of the father visited upon the sons. Mm. Because 10% of the kids in my data set, out of 290 some odd kids, had lost a significant family member like a parent or a grandparent or somebody that was actually their guardian or they lived with them. 10% of the kids. Wow. And some of these kids were only 14 years old mm. at that time. Now a lot of the kids that are going in, the average age at Louisville <clears throat> at the time was like 15, 16. Now it's 17, 18, mm. 19. Um, and there was one kid in there when I was doing my dissertation that was only like 11 or 12. Mm. So the family systems were a mess for a whole lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the kids in my data set, I can't remember the number, it was over 20%, had had someone in their family incarcerated, mm. either prior to being there or currently. So you had... That is part of their family culture. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them, like I said, had an IEP. So they had come through the special education system, which in the 90s, when I graduated with my undergrad in 1994, the school district I taught in had gone to full inclusion that year. Mm. Prior to that, these kids were in separate special ed classrooms and mm -hmm. still some of them were at that point and not every school had gone to full inclusion at that point but now we have kids in the regular education classroom and i would follow them like i follow them all over the place mm. from classroom to classroom to classroom the problem was i had three classes i was supposed to be covering in the same period so I couldn't be in the classroom with the teachers for all of my kids. Mm -hmm. And some of those teachers rolled with it and did well. And other teachers did not want those kids in their classroom at all. And other teachers didn't want me in their classroom at all. So you had a mixed bag of how that all played out. And even if you teach special education and you've had all of the training and working with special ed kids, they're a frustrating group to work with. Mm. And you can find yourself doing and saying things that you can't believe are coming out of your mouth mm. because the kid has finally pushed your buttons to the point where you can't deal with them anymore. Yeah, and you can't done. just walk away. Mm -hmm. And some special ed classrooms I would go into were like a zoo. Mm. I used to say, don't ever take a whole bunch of emotionally disturbed kids and put them in the same classroom. They just feed off of one another. Mm. And, and then the teacher becomes part of the part of the part crazy. Of, part of the crazy. <laughs> and 
I can't tell you how many times I saw that happen. Mm-hmm. To the point where I would have to go down to the, the, the emotional support classroom and think, oh, I have to go back to the zoo. I don't want to go to the mm-hmm. zoo today because it was so nuts when you'd walk in there. Mm-hmm. It's like they're crazy all cycled at the same time. And whatever would trigger off one of them, it would be like all of them would go off. It'd be like if you had a house full of dogs and one of them starts to howl. Oh, mm-hmm. Then the rest of them, they don't even know what they're howling at. Yeah. But they just join we in. should howl because he's howling. So something must mean that we need to howl. And it, if anybody tells you that there is not a correlation with the full moon and behavior, they're wrong. <laughs> because honestly, if you, when it got close to the full moon, it was it was a bad, bad couple days. Yeah, it was a bad couple of days. <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, there's, and so I I I feel like I'm saying, wow, the people that work in prisons and the people who do this and the people who do that are awful. It's an it's a hard gig. Oh, yeah. And it's easy to get sucked into the evil that's within the system and become mm-hmm. a part of it. Anytime I see somebody, a teacher being pulled to task for something or a cop being pulled to task for something or a guard being pulled to task for something, are there really bad ones that, yes. Mm-hmm. I had a guy that would push kids' buttons to get them out of his classroom and he knew he was doing it. He just didn't want them there. Mm. That's wrong. Yeah. Um but when the kids have pushed your buttons to the point where you can no longer stand to be in your classroom anymore. Mm. And for most of the teachers that I worked with, it wasn't the kids that drove them out. It was the system. Mm. It was being told that they had to sit there and make kids take standardized tests when the kids knew that they couldn't pass mm. them. And the frustration level that that brought out in the kids. It was making... I had a I had a friend who was a special ed teacher and she was incredibly gifted. And she did really cool stuff with her kids. Did a lot of science stuff with them. She would get mm-hmm. them to be really engaged in her lessons and she, it got to the point with standardized testing that she was only allowed to teach to the test prompts. Mm-hmm. She couldn't have anything on the walls in her classroom except the prompts for that day. And it finally killed her. She couldn't stand it anymore and she left teaching. So the system chews up the people that are in it, the kids, the parents, the teachers, the guards. Mm-hmm. I always said the principals in my data set were heroes because there were administrative openings all over the state. They could have gone anywhere and they chose mm-hmm. to stay with those kids because they felt like they were making a difference. Mm-hmm. And they would tell me stories about how, you know, kids would get out and they'd stay in touch with them. They'd call them. Um, You know, and things that happened with the system was so broken. Uh, I had a, my dissertation was a systems theory approach to what was happening with the transition process through these kids. So I was looking at all of the transition components that should have been involved. So it's multiple systems. And none of them work Mm. the i mean the school was trying to keep in touch with all of these folks but even the court system was a nightmare you have a kid that was sent there and they think they was he was getting out and they'd have things all set up for him and then two days before he's supposed to get released a 
cops would come in and arrest him on an old bench warrant for something else, and they're going to take him back to somewhere mm. else. And it's like, why did it take you this long to find where this kid was? Yeah. We had a kid that got out, and the probation officer that works with them while they're incarcerated is not the same probation officer that works with them in their community. Uh... And they're supposed to communicate. So we had a kid that got out, and at 10 o'clock at night, he called the principal because they had just dropped him off, and his family had moved. And he had nowhere to go, and he didn't know what to do. His family had moved? His family had moved, and the probation officer didn't apparently know. And they're supposed to go do a visit to make sure that everything's safe for the kid to go back into that environment when they get home. Mm. And that never had happened. And so the kid gets out, <clears throat> and he goes home, and his family was no longer there. Ugh. That breaks my heart. Yeah. I mean, there were, okay, I, the, there were days when I was reading the kids' files that I thought, I can't, I can't come back here tomorrow. I can't do this. I can't, mm. I can't read any more of these files. And there was one girl that clearly had been sexually abused and she was picked up by the police officers soliciting sex from an older man and taken home. And I'm thinking, why would you take her home? <laughs> clearly something is wrong in this family. She was 14 years old. If a 14-year-old is out soliciting Men for sex. Yeah. And you further, do not it, take her Oh, home. further in the report, as I get down, I'm reading about how her younger brother, who at the time was still sleeping in a crib, had been taken to the hospital because a clock fell off the wall onto his head and caused a brain injury in the same family dynamic, in the same report. And this girl was in the unit that she was in because she had raped her two younger brothers. So something was very, very evil. Yeah. There. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the girl. No. And I think that's one of the things that we can often forget when dealing with people who frustrate us or you know, yeah. whatever it might be. It's like, <clears throat> they're the product, like each one of us is the product of our upbringing, of our cultural surroundings, of our education, like all of these things go into make up who we are. Right. And when you have something so dysfunctional right. as what you've just described, not their fault right <laughs> just <clears throat> they not. may be making bad choices but the bad choices are coming out of things that have been a part of their life that have shaped them to make those choices and now, they might not know what good choices are right. yeah now for some of some of the kids that are doing stuff like that it's it's a medical issue mm -hmm. But in that case, there was some pretty strong environmental problems mm -hmm. going on there. 
I'm pretty sure a clock didn't just fall off the wall on this kid's head. Yeah. <clears throat> but on the intake, they're interviewing the kid, and this is what the kid is telling them on the intake form. Mm. Yeah. And then With you've got the, parents the arrest. there, oh, I'm sure. No, probably not. Oh, really? By the time okay. they're doing intake, they're in juvie. They're, oh, okay. They're locked up. And a social worker is doing the intake form on them. Oh, I thought you meant like at the hospital. No, 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 no. No, this was all in this girl's file as she's telling stuff. Now, they they have the background stuff in there about the arrest. (coughs) And the previous arrest. Hmm. So it lists in the beginning of it why she's in there, which was for raping her two brothers. Hmm. Then it talks about how so they got her talking, and she told this story about cops picking her up for solicitation and taking her home, and she told the story about this clock falling on her little brother's head. I mean, this was all stuff that, and there were, depending on who was writing the intake form, there was a whole variety of information in the file, or almost nothing in the file, mm. depending on who was doing the intake and the questions that they were asking. Mm. So from your experience since 2001, 2002, has, have the systems gotten any better for children? I know it's a hard question to answer. Well, (laughs) in some ways, maybe we're not incarcerating them across the state away from their home and out of their community for the most part. We still are doing that with some kids, but They have moved to more diversion and more holistic way of dealing with kids and trying to keep them in school and that kind of thing. I suspect that the ones they're keeping in the community end up in an alternative school system. Mm. But at least they're still in their community. And if they're in alternative school, then social work is involved, and that means there's Mm. some family stuff that's happening too. Mm. So there's a better possibility of better outcomes if you keep them and you work with the family. <clears throat> so if you're keeping them in the area and you're still working with the family, you've got a higher probability of a better outcome. But when you take a kid out of their family and you disconnect them from their community and you label them and you send them away and then you bring them back, mm. well, you stacked a lot, a lot of things on that kid's shoulders that reintegration is going to be kind of tough. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the adult population. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, you, you, you've got Centerpiece here mm-hmm. who's trying to work to rehabilitate prisoners and, and give them work skills and some other things mm-hmm. right, like that. But for the most part, if you had somebody that wanted to go in and do a program like that in the community, you have to get the community's buy-in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're going in to try to convince the community that they should have a prisoner work release program right in their backyard, not too many communities are going to go, yes, sign me up. I would like those prisoners to have a mm-hmm. second chance in my backyard near my kids. Yeah. Not far from my school. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't going to. Yeah, they're not going to sign up for that. No. So, Where's the redemption? Where's the 
where's the how are we living out our faith mm -hmm. when we want to re-victimize mm. people now are there some people i would not want in my backyard yeah there was one kid wow i don't know that that kid was ever going to be safe mm. to be allowed not to be locked up mm -hmm. <clears throat> that was one out of a lot of kids yeah so what i guess what are our options for for fighting against the evil or the anti-redemption that happens like one or two <laughs> we need to do a better job of supporting families and i don't mean by doling out money to them because i think welfare is a bad was a bad idea mm. we took away the dignity of work mm. and we created a whole group of people that we just handed money to who had no purpose, no direction, no connection, and then we looked down on them because they took the money. Mm. So that wasn't a good idea. <clears throat> but we need to be thinking about how do we create communities where people have dignity and can work and are valued even when they're difficult? Mm. Mm -hmm. And how do we provide those supports to help those folks get healthy be able to learn better coping mechanisms, um, get them the medical care they need so that they're not self-medicating with drugs or drugs alcohol, or alcohol. Um, create systems of support where we don't burn out the workers so the workers start blaming mm -hmm. their clients. <laughs> for, yeah. For, because it's really easy to, to have mm -hmm. that happen. And look at our, our social work system, cracks me up. Every time I see anybody on TV that's related to that, they're all 20 to 24 year olds. Mm -hmm. I don't know that when I was 20 to 24, I would have had much wisdom or patience or ability yeah. to sit and create redemptive space for someone. Mm -mm. I'm not sure those words come out of most 24 year olds yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's what do you mean redemptive space what are you talking right. about so yeah. so we need to create a better um pay scale mm -hmm. for those folks that are doing that kind of work because they they're not in that field very long mm -hmm. before they move out one of the things that happened <laughs> i was going into south mountain with the principal one day and the person at the gate didn't know who he was and he'd worked there for like 10 or 15 years because the turnover was so high oh, mm -hmm. with the people who worked security and the people on the social work side oh, mm -hmm. the turnover was really high and if you're trying to get a kid to trust you mm. and every four months you have a new counselor because the turnover rate is high, because the pay is low and the hours are awful, mm -hmm. it's going to be pretty hard to make that work. So having people that have a living wage, that have more support for what they do so that they're not burning out, mm -hmm. um, so that their caseloads are not as high, 
would make a huge difference mm -hmm. in the system. And having them work together as a team mm -hmm. of support mm -hmm. would make a huge difference. Because then when you meet to have a discussion, you've got more than one person that's working with this individual mm -hmm. and their family, and mm -hmm. they're seeing it from different perspectives, and they can yeah. start to... Brainstorming, yes. support, yeah. ideas. Yeah. yeah. Right. Tactical and right. team initiatives. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep people in the community for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't keep people in the community, then you can't work with all of the people that are involved in that kid's life mm -hmm. or that young adult's life if it's a returning offender. And when we look at the research, the incarceration rate starts to go down when people get to be 26, 27, 28 mm. for most individuals. Well, we now have a lot of data that shows the human brain is not done growing until it's like 25, mm. 26. So technically we're not adults <laughs> until yeah. our mid to late 20s as far as our brain development mm. goes. But when we start to see that, sorry, I just I was reminded of how um, rabbis were not rabbis until thirty. Right. <laughs> Maybe the Jews have something there. <laughs> they know something intrinsically that we do not embrace as a Western culture. Well, and there's a there's something to be said for wisdom coming with, with life experience and age. Mm -hmm. Although I've met some people my age that aren't very wise. And I've met some people in their early 20s that are quite wise. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we can't, you know, draw a line yeah. and say this is this is what it has to be. But there's something to be said for creating systems of care and support and accountability that help people live with dignity. And I don't think we've done that. We just want to say, ooh, they're just too difficult to work with and they keep showing up here yeah. and they just make bad choices and they're, mm -hmm. there's a word we call them that I won't say on this podcast because it's profanity, mm -hmm. but that's how we label them. Mm -hmm. And it's then how they label themselves. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. This was very educational. <laughs> it's always fun to learn something that you have no idea about. And I think hopefully all of our listeners have learned something as well. And if this has caught your attention, you know, please reach out to us either at our website, www.waterworksministries.org, or you can find us on Facebook at Waterworks Ministries. Um, give us a holler and we can connect you to some of the research that Mary Beth was talking about and also different ways to get involved in these kind of community systems uh, that do help uh, rehabilitate and, and support at-risk youth and families. So may you all have grace and peace as we enjoy the February weather. <laughs>